Grassroots Hi-Fi is recorded and produced on Bunurong Country and pays its respects to the elders of past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to episode 3 of Grassroots Hi-Fi. My name's Dave Junior Jupp and you're listening to Radio Karam. I hope everyone's had a fantastic Christmas and New Year's. I definitely have. I've got a fantastic show lined up for you today. Um, As I said, it's a bit of a uh, passion project of mine, this show, and it is definitely a work in progress. And uh, I have made a few additions to this one. I'm actually making it 90 minutes long uh, now. Um, The reason for that is... I want to get a lot of talking and a lot of music as well. A lot of the previous um, episodes, I was only managing to fit in, you know, one or at least two songs in between um, talking breaks and all up the whole show would only have about four or five songs tops. Um, You know, with this format, we can get a little bit more talk and a little bit more um, a little bit more music in, in in as well so we're doing 90 minute shows now and uh, I'm also going to do another thing which have, which I found was a lot of fun on a previous show I did in Triple R um, which was a pop-up show it's very similar to this where um, the guests would uh, have a you know have the opportunity to choose a song to play and uh, I always found that was um, you know quite interesting as well probably gets a bit of a break from all the random stuff I play too. Um, but yeah, that's a bit of fun as well. So I'm introducing that into the, the format as well. But, um, well, without further ado, let's talk about our new guest. Geo Fitzpatrick is a leader in the field of citizen science. And from a very young age, he's amassed a wealth of knowledge on the subject of urban ecology. And he was one of the many strong community voices that helped the former Elstonwick Park golf course become the new Yellowcote Willem Nature Reserve. Geo Fitzpatrick, thank you so much for coming on to Grassroots Hi-Fi. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So I've been really looking forward to getting you on the show because um, you've done so many amazing things with um, you know such an urbanised area. You know, growing up around St Kilda and all that, and and you know putting up bird boxes and and just really digging deep on the type of um, wildlife you can actually see in urbanised areas and really showing people what you can do um, with a little bit of uh, grit and time. So, firstly, I'd like to talk about um, nesting boxes. I understand when you're a kid, you had a bit of a, a taste for making them, and you sort of you used to make them in your shed and all that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I still do. Yeah. Usually, early spring, there's a big flurry where I'm in a rush to to make as many as I can. Yeah. But um, yeah, I probably started when I was about eleven. Yeah. And the box I built then 
Uh, it was pretty shoddy, but it's actually still up the tree in the St. Kilda Botanic Gardens. Yeah. And it's still got um, a brush-tailed possum living in it. Brushy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, nice. When, when that, or probably a different one now, when it moved in and I climbed the tree and saw it in there, it was like I couldn't believe my eyes that, you know, a thing I'd just built with my hands yeah. was suddenly, you know, home to this, oh, this creature. Cool. Um, so, I sat up in the tree for about two hours that night waiting for it to come out, but it must have known I was there, so it never came. But I just wanted to make it real, you know. And see it coming out, <laughs> but yeah, no. Since then, I think I've been been hooked. It's um, it's you know such a simple but potentially really valuable thing. So why would you not do it? You know. Yeah. So like, so for for people listening, like if they live in a um, in an urbanised area, you know, you probably got noisy miners everywhere, and you wanted to make a some sort of uh, wildlife box. What what do you think would sort of like be the sort of like factors to help them decide on what type of box they could do they could build? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it it varies a lot like between different regions of Melbourne, um, but when I'm building boxes or thinking about you know what what designs to to create and put up, it's best to look at um, you know the the animal community in your local area and try to get a gauge on what's declining um or you know the the trajectories of different things and of course nest boxes are only going to work for hollow dependent species as well so yeah not not everything will benefit from from a nest box and then also it's a matter of trying to figure out well if things are declining is uh is it maybe the lack of hollows that's the limiting factor there or is it something else that needs to be tackled but in a lot of cases in melbourne uh, and for a lot of species it does seem to be the lack of nesting opportunities you know for a lot of things the food's there but without the hollows they just won't breed so um so an example um a lot of the northern suburbs of melbourne um i see red runt parrots all the time looking into um little nooks and crannies on power poles and on facades of buildings and all that sort of stuff even into like you know street signs they'll be trying to get into the hole in the top um out west um purple crowned lorikeets would you believe it trying to nest in um in like those square metal posts that hold up power lines and and stuff around train stations. I've seen purple yeah. crown lorikeets <laughs> trying to get into that. Wow. Um, and then um, you know, sacred kingfishers um, in some areas. Uh, they they've died out for, from a lack of food as well, and 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 other things, noisy miners and that. But um, then of course we've got a whole host of microbats that probably would be doing a lot better in the suburbs if um, if they had. <clears throat> better roosting opportunities particularly in in the larger reserves um where the, where there's a lot of food there but just no old trees and and also in the parks where we don't retain our dead trees the micro bats suffer from that too so right uh, so they're the two things i usually think about you know um things like rainbow lorikeets super common and definitely not limited you know by by um a lack of nesting opportunities they so, do very well so so you could almost like put the wrong one in mm. you know, because like you could end up like i mean rainbow lorikeets are lovely looking birds but they're everywhere and they're a little bit bullish um how would you sort of like say if you wanted to put red rumps in uh, red rump parrots which are native birds to the area but not as common what what sort of specifications what would you do to like make a nesting box that would suit just a red rump parrot opposed to like some of the other mm. more dominant birds 
Yeah, well, there's usually a design feature you can you can use. Um, not all the answers are known yet, but um, uh, yeah, that's been something I've been trying to figure out for years. Um, and with red rump parrots versus rainbow lorikeets, that's a really simple one. Uh, it's just about hole size because um, rainbow lorikeets probably weigh you know a good thirty grams more or or more than that than a red rump. So. Um, I'm pretty well convinced that a 51 millimeter hole is going to stop most rainbow lorikeets getting in while still allowing pretty much all red rump parrots to get in. So, um, yeah, it's it's um, it's never a perfect fix. Like there's some small rainbow lorikeets that will get yeah. through a really small hole. <laughs> um, and even common miners, which are heavier again, I've seen them get through a 51 millimeter hole, but, you know, most of the time that's going to work. Yeah. Um, uh yeah and then you know after that probably the main competitor that'll be getting through a small hole like that would be a starling but of course they prefer a shallow box that they can actually jump from the base inside up to the hole whereas a red rump can climb an unlimited distance from the base to the hole so it's about creating a narrow deep chamber to give it the edge you know so it's stuff like what about um Microbats is an interesting one. Yeah, so yeah, How sure. many species do you think you could get of microbats in most in your average Melbourne sort of like area? Yeah, three to four. Yeah, um, yeah, particularly if you're near a good patch of of green space. Um, so everyone would be familiar with the sound of white striped freetail bats flying over at night pretty much um i can do a little demo hopefully this doesn't knock around too much (laughs) but um so it sounds a bit like this they go right yeah it's a really high frequency chirp isn't it yeah i just um, want to say on people on radio he actually did that with his hands <laughs> yeah it's like his hands like dry hands that are like making a little slipping sound yeah exactly <laughs> it's so, pretty clever actually so they're around um yeah. but yeah they they need a really big hollow and usually really high up they're hard to target yeah. with nest boxes um and their requirements aren't really well known either but um, I've put up nest boxes for, for microbats um, in the St Kilda Botanic Gardens years and years ago when I first started. And um, I, I went out watching Gould's Waddle bats at night, looked at where their flight patterns were, spotted a, um, a good tree that was a good candidate, nice and straight with no, not too much clutter around it. Yeah. Um, put a box there. Within 13 days, there was a Gould's Waddle bat in it. Within 13 and days? Where did you put that up? Was yeah. it around um, Elstonwick Park? Or? That was in the St Kilda Botanic Gardens on a, uh, on a lemon-scented gum. So a lot of microbats like a really bare spot to roost like they okay. won't be if you if you put a, a box you know in dense shrubbery or even just in amongst branches on a tree yeah they won't find it for years usually or i've actually had microbats move out of a box permanently when some coppice regrowth grew up in front of it they knew the box was there but they stopped yeah. using it and it could be for thermal you know it, the thermal properties of the box they like to heat up and stuff like that it also might just be a matter of being hard for them to get in and out um and funnily enough on the on the red rump parrot question they seem to like those exposed spots as well for some okay. reason so that's worth knowing is that the placement of the box is often just as important as the design so you could literally like if you wanted to do like a, a micro bat box you could put it on a light on like a light pole or something like that if you really wanted wouldn't yeah you? to be honest it's probably more likely to be used if you put it on an artificial structure like a pole or the wall of a building yeah than on a tree yeah yeah, yeah. and how do, how do you sort of like monitor you monitor these things like if you want to check it without sort of like having to climb up 
Mm. Me. You used to have like a, an iPhone on a pole or something like that. Or- yeah, you can do that. But um, it's easy with the microbat boxes. You can make them so they're open at the bottom. Yeah. And all you got to do is stand underneath with a torch and have a look up there and you see, you know, 20 faces looking down yeah, from the top. Yeah, they're holding on, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you need to so- put like a little hanger there for them? Or they just like put their, they claw onto the side? If the timber that you're using is rough enough, they'll just climb straight into that. So I use like um, cypress sleepers. Yeah. Um, they're great because you can get them... Um, you know, from fallen windbreak trees and they're really cheap. They're really well insulated and they're nice and rough. You don't have to do anything. But if you're building it out of, say, plywood or something, you'll need to roughen it up with, you know, even just a chisel or whatever you've got just to make it so that, you know, if you scratch your nails along it, they get caught. That's enough right. for them, yeah. Yeah. Mm. I remember I went camping once and we've got this caravan that um, it has like this little spot where there's an overhang and it's canvas and there's a hole at the top. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> the middle of the night, my wife's like screaming, there's a there's a giant moth in the caravan and it wasn't a giant moth, it beautiful. was a bat. Nice. And uh, oh, it was such a beautiful thing. I mean, <laughs> I managed to catch it pretty easily just with... Um, with a towel, because uh-huh. um, it was so delicate. I was, like, really worried about hurting it when I caught it. But um, I actually used a tea towel and got it in that and got it out pretty successfully. Yeah, but yeah. Um, that sort of, like, showed me that the, <laughs> the sort of structure you want to do when you mm. want to make a bat box, don't you? You want to do, like, a an overhanging um, bit of wood yeah. and a rough bit of wood they can climb up and go almost like a, a letterbox but with an overhang. Is that about right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, so often, like, a hollow in the trunk of a tree, Yeah, the hole's obviously facing outwards and then there's there's a hollow that will go down and a hollow that goes up from there as well. And most microbats tend to go up, whereas yeah. everything else that uses a hollow, all the other vertebrates go to the bottom. Yeah. So, so yeah, they definitely, I mean, there's probably a few reasons that they go up. Um, one being that they like to be sort of up in a cavity that's going to trap a lot of heat as well. Yeah. Um, so they're, you know, they're very small but they're also warm-blooded, so they, they like to be able to um, collectively, as a group, use their body heat to warm themselves before they leave. So, yeah, so yeah definitely that overhang thing is, is pretty important, it seems, yeah. for them, yeah. So mm. what, what type of benefits do you reckon you would get from having, like, microbats in your, in your area? Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, they're a, they're a pretty integral part of, um, of the ecosystems around here. <clears throat> they eat a lot of insects. Um, so, you know, you'll, you'll usually hear people say, oh, um, they're great because they control insects, but I sort of see it the other way around where you need a lot of insects to support these great things, you know. Right, yeah. Um, but, um, you yeah, know, um, they also are food for a lot of things. Yeah. So, uh, I've had um, some great hours spent watching Gould's wattle bats hunting around the... Um, the wetlands at uh, what used to be called the Elstonwick Park Nature Reserve, now the Yalakut Willem Nature Reserve. They concentrate there in the winter um, around the wetland and I've watched boobooks coming and snatching them as they fly across the wetland. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, and that's a bird that's um, kind of just clinging to existence in the suburbs. So, anything that's attracting them and feeding them is is hugely important, I think. yeah, and um, who knows what else they're doing, but um, I know they, they also um, add to the kind of um, environment within the hollow too. So, like, when when you get microbats move into a box and all the poo that collects down the bottom, there's a whole host of insects that just seem to live 
in that environment only you know yeah. as well yeah so um no they, they're great to have around um i have heard that you know some microbats will eat their own body weight in mosquitoes every night as well which people like to hear oh, too so what yeah, like it's pretty right good. now yeah i think microbat boxes could <laughs> probably pre be pretty popular exactly because there's yeah. bloody mozzies everywhere at the moment totally yeah, yeah. so what other um so we've covered like bird boxes and we've covered microbat boxes they would only really leave um you know possums and uh, possum and sugar glider boxes wouldn't it Mm. yeah so so, um yeah we've obviously got the two common and very very successful possums in most of the suburbs of melbourne uh the the common ringtail and common brush tail and do you um, think they actually need that sort of support to have like a box like in, in an urban area because they tend to be pretty tough don't they? extremely yeah very um successful opportunistic critters um and uh definitely not limited by you know the lack of hollows because well for brush tails they'll um they'll happily roost or den sorry in um you know roof spaces mm-hmm. and then ringtails aren't limited by hollows as well because they'll build a dray um if there are no hollows and of course there are more of those um, to marsupials than there probably ever were here before so not a whole lot of worth in um, putting up boxes for them unless you've got problems in your roof or something when it comes to sugar gliders they're an interesting case because they're they are actually hanging on on the edges of the suburbs in some places um i mean i think they reach all the way into like camberwell um but then you know the, in the east and north um they're along some of the creek lines in the golf courses and that sort of thing and then you know in the northern mornington peninsula they're um they're still in the suburbs i think the thing that's allowing them to hang on there is not so much hollows but it's the right choice of street trees or yeah. the retention of little patches of bushland because yeah. they're they get a lot of their food from very specific trees. The, the other two possums are really generalists, but um, but sugar gliders, you know, they really rely on acacia sap, especially from black wattles. Yeah. And then having the eucalypts there as well is pretty important for them too. So I reckon if we had better choice of street trees, we'd have sugar gliders alongside the other two as just common mammals in in the suburbs and they'd probably yeah. be denning in people's roofs as well. So ideally in an urban setting for sugar gliders, you want like, um, you want tall eucalypts so they've got like somewhere to jump, you know, to be able to move around, but you also want your um, your black wattles, acacia mernsii for them to, to browse on as well, don't you? And they, it's the the sap if anyone knows you you would know uh, an acacia mernsii by they're those ones that have those amber dripping little um drips going all down the trunk um mm. unfortunately though i can imagine councils they don't like to plant um, acacia mernsii on a street because it's got 15 years and then it like drops yeah. over gets attacked by borers and looks yeah. pretty lousy yeah in my opinion yeah we should be planting things like that wherever we can wherever it's practical but then you know as a street tree silver wattle makes a really good sort of um alternative oh yeah because it's um it's got a lot of overlap in the wildlife that'll use it yeah but it lives for about 80 years and it's been used successfully as a street tree overseas funnily enough through a lot of europe and also in canberra too so um and you know when when you're plane trees and ornamental pears are all looking half dead yeah. in the winter that's just golden blossoms oh, all over the, the place oh, so the blossoms on those yeah. are fantastic yeah like, i can't help taking photos of them every year because yeah. it's just like this big burst of yellow everywhere yeah 
So, oh, I think we've covered boxes enough. <laughs> sure. Yeah. We could probably talk about them all day because yep. it's so fun and interesting. Oh, but just before I close on that, if anyone wanted to look into building their own boxes, do you know anywhere that would be a good starting point for them to yeah. to find out how to do it and, uh, you know, for sure. and how to I'll try to give a quickish answer on that. I, I'm writing a book on it at the moment. Oh, excellent. But, um, uh, Two books that helped me in the early days are uh, The Nest Box Book by Gould League. Oh, yeah. And then there's um, Nest Boxes for Wildlife by Alan and Stacey Franks. And they're both pretty good starting points. The thing is, when you're putting up nest boxes, like anything in ecology, it's so contextual, you know. So, your local context will change what uses your box and also, you know, um, yeah, all sorts of things. So... The best thing is to experiment and if you want to talk to other people who are experimenting, there's a, a lady, um, I think in the somewhere around Canberra that has started a Facebook group called Nestbox Tales. Oh, yeah. And um, that'd be my recommendation is people get on there and ask questions or just observe what other people are finding because, oh, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of room for, for learning in that field. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to take a bit of a musical interlude right now. This is... Jojo Zep and the Falcons with The Shape I'm In, dub version. Hi everybody, this is Witch from Spiderbait. When I'm passing through Karam, aside from slowing down to 50 kilometres an hour and reminisce about doing the Eel Race Road Rumba or the Watley Street Wiggle, I like to tune in to Radio Karam and get down with the good vibes. Thanks for tuning in, folks. You're listening to Radio Camera. The show is Grassroots Hi-Fi. The track you're listening to now is called Dub Fighter, and that's from Michael Rose of Black Uhuru fame. And that comes off his album titled Showdown in a Bloody Town, which came out in 2013, and... Uh, I really love the, the, the horns in that mariachi style. Uh, so intricate, such a polished production that really good. And before that, you heard Melbourne's own rockers from the 70s, Jojo Zet and the Falcons, with a dubbed up version of The Shape on Them. Don't exactly know who did the dub on this. I do know it's really good, and it also comes off a really good album. Titled Burning It Up, Australian Reggae, 1979 to 1986. And that came out uh, mid last year on Oz Study Records. Um, I got that on Bandcamp and it was available for vinyl. I'm not sure if they've still got any stock, but um, there's a lot of uh, other great Aussie uh, reggae tracks on there and uh, I would definitely recommend checking it out. We're going to get back to uh, talking to Geo right now, where we'll be talking about an amazing new nature park in the inner suburbs of Melbourne. Mm. So um, I would like to talk about that old golf course mm. yeah, cool. <laughs> that I used to play at and lose your balls at That's and get right, angry. Yeah. <laughs> Did many Which, end up in the water? Look, or, uh, there's probably yeah. a good chance you yeah. might find one of my <laughs> yeah. golf balls in the water yeah, somewhere right. one day. Mm. But, um, <laughs> it was a bit of an empty golf course. That's the Elstonwick golf course I'm talking about. And um, some amazing people have, have put put together, um, you know, some, some proposal to the councils. This happened about two years ago. They used a bit of people power and managed to um, claim that 
for for nature because uh, the the golf course wasn't doing too good and uh, there was probably a chance they were going to make it into sporting fields, wasn't it? And uh, yeah, some other crazy things. Yeah. Um, so the way it was done was was dodgy from the start, unfortunately. So there were two options that the community was suddenly presented with. Yeah. That was the first they heard of it, and both of those options. Uh, involved, you know, the destruction of the wetlands, destruction of huge numbers of trees in there. Um, and we're talking about the last bit of exposed creek anywhere between Mordialic Creek and the Yarra. Yeah. Um, so so the, the creek that you're talking about, um, it's, uh, what's the creek called again, sorry? Uh, Elster Creek. Elster Creek, yeah. So it runs out into the bay, quite shallow, concreted by the time it gets to... Hmm gets to the to the bay but that is linked to the golf course isn't it yeah so uh it comes out at the bay where it's called the elwood canal by most people yeah um and the canal was was built to drain the old elwood swamp but the swamp has always been fed by a spring somewhere in the vicinity of caulfield park that's been built over right i've got a friend who did some underground concreting in a car park and he said what's going on here he's showing me a video where they just couldn't stop the water flowing in so i think he found somewhere very close to the spring wow um and so that creek still flows but of course it's paved like most of the old creeks and um and being put underground all the way down up until it comes out at um new street and then uh then it's a natural creek again or sort of natural yeah um and and yeah that spreads out a little bit and you've got some nice wetlands running through the uh what used to be the golf course and then it's bluestone lined and um and concreted again but we may have an opportunity to change that soon yeah yeah yeah. so um how did that all happen like uh because i just think it's amazing thing that you know something you know got made into habitat rather than development you know um what how did that come about like uh what people got together and and did what yeah in a nutshell yeah sure well um you're right about it being people power it was a huge number of people that got behind it um towards the end and um my interest in the place first started about uh 2012 so well before the um the golf course's future came into question but i saw it as a really interesting kind of time capsule where there were these all of these animals and plants still surviving um that had become locally extinct in the surrounding areas so yeah. I, I made a special study of it and wanted to understand what was there how it was living there and how we could sort of learn from that to apply it to maybe other parks you know yeah um and so i ended up going there just about every day that was after school or instead of school yeah. or you know what a legend and, like, um, i was a, i was doing bad stuff when I was your oh yeah yeah I think the groundskeeper there thought I was doing some pretty bad stuff Um, (laughs) at one point I had a um, a moth trap set up overnight and um, he'd found it I went back to go and have a look what was in there and he was standing about 20 metres away from it he thought it was an improvised explosive device (laughs) it was a a car battery that was beefing and a a lamp in a bucket with some cords and yeah (laughs) Um, but uh, anyway yeah so i um yeah i over over the years I, I, it just occurred to me i was seeing these amazing things there you know and i was taking photos and collecting a lot of footage that ended up being extremely important within a really short space of time i thought maybe sometime in the distant future i could suggest that they um 
you know, uh, maybe maintain the golf course in a, in a more sympathetic way for wildlife. But it turns out that um, all of that stuff, you know, I ended up <clears throat> um, using that to try to um, garner public support. And, and um, there was a lot, of, a lot of people who really jumped on board yeah. in a big way. So um, the more people, um, you know, from the local community that found out about it, the more people we had coming to... Um, council meetings until we were pretty much flooding every meeting um spilling out into the hallways and um yeah over time um there was so much pressure on the council uh, some of whom you know may have had some vested interests there and that sort of thing so we were up against it really um and then of course the the organized groups like the um that were aiming for the land grab you know um that uh, eventually they they put the decision to a community jury, which they'd never done before. That's interesting. Yeah, and once they did that, uh, suddenly it was not such a hard decision anymore. It was eighty three percent in favour yeah. of a third option uh, that we'd put on the table. So uh, this is certainly not all me. This was a lot of people that put a lot of work in at that point, and um, and it was really well organised. You know, like yeah. it was. Yeah, something that we met about very regularly and and um, had yeah you know some some people working on strategy in the background and all that sort of stuff. That's what yeah. it took. Um, but uh, yeah, so we ended up with um, also a new council after that. Some people were voted out on certain issues involved. Really? Yeah. So mm. we've got a council now who's very sympathetic to it and um, and I think can see the benefits for for them and the community now as well. So yeah, yeah. So um, what's it what's it called now? Now it was called uh, Elstonwick Park, but it's got a nice country name now, yep. doesn't it? What's yeah, it called? It does. It's called the Yellowcat Willem Nature Reserve. Yeah. yeah, which I think is a pretty cool name. Yeah, um, Yellowcat Willem being the local clan of the Boonwurrung. Yeah, um, and I think it means river people. Yeah, or something along those lines. So yeah, um, yeah pretty apt, I reckon. Um, yeah. So, have you been used like as a consultant for like type of the types of plants to be used and the type of, you know, it's a complicated thing because you've put a chain of ponds in there for starters, which is going to do amazing things. You know, once you add water to things, uh, magic seems to happen in nature, doesn't it? Totally. So you've yep. got all these these complex um, chains of ponds and water systems. Um, did you have much to do with like plant selection, or did? Yeah. That type of thing? Yeah. So, um, so far, about a quarter of the place has been um, developed into, you know, the next stage, the, the nature reserve, if you like. And, um, and yeah, that involved a lot of landscaping. So, <clears throat> uh, yeah, I'd, I'd been consulting with the council, um, s- yeah, pretty much since, you know, since the decision was made. Um, and originally, you know, I was pointing out that if we want certain things to thrive there, we're going to need off offline wetlands because the, the creek uh, has issues with pollution and also gambusia, a little so, introduced so, fish. So. so what you're saying, like with offline um, wetlands, you, 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 there's no stormwater going to it basically. Yeah. Right? Or, it's, or street, um, street stormwater? Or? Yeah, it's just... <clears throat> separate water bodies from the main creek so so the the chain of ponds that you're talking about it does get its water from the creek but it goes through a sand filter first which takes out some of the pollutants but also you know the gambusia as yeah. well so once the water's in there um then it allows things like frogs to really thrive that are otherwise hammered by gambusia in, in other places so um 
Yeah, so that was done. That was acted on, which was really lovely. And we now have the chain of ponds. And um, yeah, I was hired by the council to um, to come up with um, the vegetation plans as well um, to try to maximise the habitat value. Yeah, <clears throat> which is really uh, it's lovely to, to be a part of that. Yeah. Super exciting. And, oh, um, isn't it really exciting? Because like yeah. <clears throat> you know, in this industry, it's a long game. That's. Um, <laughs> you know you're patient aren't you like you put the plants in you wait for them to grow and then you want to see what comes yeah what sort of like uh wildlife were you seeing uh before just from that little creek uh elster creek that used to um flow through there yeah sure well um so in terms of birds obviously they're the most mobile of anything so when you create habitat uh birds can respond to that really quickly um and uh, another thing I did that uh, pissed off the ground groundskeeper a little bit was um, <laughs> a bit of habitat that I decided to create was there's this really big unused part of the golf course all grassy yeah. and uh, it used to get wet in the winter I noticed so I thought oh a pond would be pretty good there then you get frogs yeah. so, I, so I dug out a pond and used the soil to uh, make a little island in the wetland yeah. and within a couple of weeks after that island was there had um whiskered turn and two pink-eared ducks appear on that little wetland wow which had never been there before but you know just the tiniest little shift and suddenly it looks good for them yeah um so yeah we got some interesting things you know there's rakali that live in there it's the only inland population of rakali in bayside when i first went there blew my mind there were two cape barren geese on that golf course yeah that's insane Um, like i've no i've only seen them like down the peninsula yeah you hardly even see them there it's exactly more of the uh yeah. a phillip island type thing and sort of flinders island yeah as main thing but those it? little things they inspire you and think make you think you know what else is possible yeah um if if it's all happening by accident what if we actually put in some effort you know yeah um and then there was also some eastern rosellas which i'm sure a lot of people you know think of as a really common bird but up that way they're actually on the edge of their local range so yeah. they were they were one that i started targeting with the nest boxes and thought you know we, we could do a bit of um, habitat creation work to help things like that. Yeah, but um, yeah, things have changed a bit since the you know the development of the chain of ponds. Suddenly, red rump parrots have moved in in droves. They're outnumbering the eastern rosellas now, and, and they're nesting in the boxes. They, that's, that's amazing. They, yeah, they love some of the things we've put in. Like they they Senecio quadridentatus seeds. They eat the Pelagonium seeds. They they love uh, nodding saltbush, the Inardia nutans as yeah. well. All stuff that wasn't really there before in any numbers. And um, uh, also another thing that was interesting is. Almost all the eastern snakeneck turtles moved out of the old wetland and into the new ponds within oh, just a they? couple of months of them being in. Wow, I wonder yeah. why that is. Like- well, so unfortunately, Gambusia have now made it in and we're going to probably drain the ponds to, to fix that. But during what, a, What's the common name for Gambusia? Oh, there's a couple, plague minnow or mosquito fish yeah, yeah. too that get yeah. used, yeah. Um, but before then, it would have been great for the turtles because it was brimming with insect life that- yeah a lot of which had never been recorded in the creek. You know, lots of diving beetles, water scorpions, giant water bugs, and just unbelievable numbers of mud eyes or dragonfly nymphs as well. So a lot of stuff for the turtles to eat that's not so much in the creek. Yeah. Um, And then frogs have turned up too. Uh, Funnily enough, I reckon a few of them might be, uh, you know, dropped off by people. But um, also we get... Um, we get things washing down from Kakarook Park, believe it or not, which is eight k's away. Kakarook Park, yeah, well, that, that's um, right at the end of South Road. That's uh, yeah. 
Warrigal Road. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. Corner of Warrigal starts. Corner of Warrigal and South Road, doesn't it? Yeah, That's exactly. Ages away. I know, <laughs> but um, Pobble Bonks and Striped Marsh Frogs regularly turn up on the edges of the paved drain right down near the reserve. So yeah. I've talked to people who find them in their gardens all the time, and there's no breeding populations there. Yeah, but the the top of the of the Elster Creek catchment, all underground pipes, you know, just just gutters is about 200 metres away from Karkrook Park in the factories there. So I reckon frogs spreading out from Karkrook Park are going down the drains and just surfing the stormwater down. <laughs> and they've probably been doing it for years and now finally yeah. they're finding habitat on the other end. Yeah. So we've got a pobble bonk, just a single pobble bonk so far, calling oh, from the ponds. But, you know, I, I it's bet just you'll the beginning. have heaps. I bet you'll have yeah. heaps soon. Perrin's tree frog too, which is just awesome. Yeah. Perrin's tree frog? Yeah, yeah I there. can play the call at some point. I've got a video of it on my phone calling. Yeah. We'll be back with Geo later, but for now, I'm going to play you some funk. This track's called Superwoman. Hi, this is Matt Joe Gale, and you're listening to Radio Karam, which is local community internet radio. And uh, we were having a chat about community radio earlier and how important it is to Melbourne, how important it is to the scene here, the music scene, but also the wider community. So check out Radio Karam. Tune in. Hello and welcome back. You're listening to Grassroots Hi-Fi. My name is Dave Junior Jupp. And we are brought to you by Radio Karam. The track you heard just then is Kibri. Sorry, Kiburi from the Incredible Bongo Band. Before that, we heard Tell the Truth by Shirley Wiles. And to kick that bracket off, we had Superwoman. And that's from a band called The Beginning of the End. And that comes off a compilation called Henry Stone's Miami Sound. We're going to get back to our chat with Geo right now, where we'll be talking about a holistic approach to Indigenous habitat gardening. So, yeah. what, what do you think? Like, what do you think that's an urban type? You know, it could be a bird or something like that. Most likely, a bird. Are there any sort of like animals that we take for granted that would be threatened now for urbanisation? Do you think? Yeah, interesting. Um you know, like say, you know, magpies. We we've, we take them for granted. Yeah. We see them everywhere. Mm. But you know, have they got the habitat to yeah. to stabilise? You yeah. know, like things you saw as a kid, you yeah. don't see now. Is oh, there are so many examples of things in that category. Yeah. Like uh, I reckon most most people don't realise that they don't see kookaburras anymore. You know, I, I really see yeah. like, and yeah. that's one thing you can hear. Yeah, you know, yeah. and you you won't hear a kookaburra. Mm. Like I remember the, hearing them as a kid, and like mm. you have to pretty go go pretty far away from the burbs to hear one now. Mm. Don't you? Exactly, yeah. yeah, and and like you say. Uh, it's really important to remember they're still trying to hang on. You know, there's some some areas, you know, quite close to the city where they're still there and that's a window of opportunity for, for people to actually act on it and make sure they don't disappear for good. Yeah. But, um, yeah, something like that, you know, it's iconic and um, and everyone knows what it is. And, and actually, I've, I have a book, like the, the Melbourne Bird Atlas, and um, it shows the abundance of things right across Melbourne. And kookaburras were just w- totally widespread and abundant in pretty much every part of Melbourne. Yeah. That would have been back in the 60s, 70s, that yep. book. Yep. And obviously, a hell of a lot's changed. And it's it's not as simple as, you know, it's, it's just one thing, but they're a great indicator being fairly high up the food chain that there's just not that food for them anymore because they're a yeah. pretty tenacious bird you know if the food's around they'll survive in just about any habitat yeah but um 
you know they rely on large invertebrates and small vertebrates on the ground mostly mm. and um and that's a habitat that's probably been been hammered you know more yeah. than anything is that well it's, it's they, they do love you know baby snakes and baby lizards and, yeah exactly um, yeah you know, snakes are getting really pushed to the edge now because, yep. you know, they get a bad rap. Yeah. And uh, like even the garden skink, you know, mm. the common garden skink, it's not yep. common here. I'm like, yeah. I don't think I've seen a garden skink in my yard, so mm. what do they call it a garden skink still? Yeah, yeah. You know, like, <laughs> well, uh, down my area, they should call it a railway reserve skink because that's the only <laughs> yeah. place they, they still do any, you know, there's any numbers of them, um, yeah. unfortunately. But, um, yeah, you'll still get weasel skinks in gardens, but they, they don't get eaten by birds so much because they don't bask so yeah. Uh, but yeah yeah it is tough uh, you know I see sacred kingfishers moving through the city um, every spring yeah and they, you know they stop for a feed but they don't get it in most places it looks like there should be food for them there but yeah 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 we, we have to do a bit of work in bolstering the, the lower end of the food web I think yeah um, particularly things on the ground and just getting more indigenous plants in that that then feed a lot of the indigenous insects and that's where yeah. it all starts, yeah. And, you know, it doesn't help that, like, you know, councils keep on planting European, like, mm. you know, deciduous trees, you know, like uh, things like kookaburras, rosellas, they, you know, they've got no yeah. reason to go into them. Like, I know, mm. you know, people think there has to be, like, nectar for them or whatever, but, like, there has to be, like, you know, bark and insects and all types of things happening, not mm. like a clean trunk with, like, leaves that come off yeah exactly you know, every winter yeah. like so and it all looks green to us it all looks the same but really where you know the, the basis of the food web is with the insects and um most of the world's insects are plant eaters and most of those about 90 percent are um food plant specialists yeah so they have a very small number of plant species yeah. um, that they can feed on and it's usually those that they've evolved alongside so once you start replacing indigenous vegetation with exotic which is what we've done on a huge scale and continue to do it's it's not a trivial thing it's a massive upset to the ecosystem from yeah. the bottom up yeah. um, there was a guy <clears throat> um, Doug Tallamy who did a fantastic study looking at the biomass of caterpillars in introduced hedgerows versus native ones and he found um, a reduction in 90 by 96 percent of caterpillar biomass in the introduced plants yeah so for something that feeds off of caterpillars which is just about everything yeah. you know, especially birds reptiles that sort of thing caterpillars yeah. are the absolute you know they caterpillars transform more plant material into animal material than any other group of, of animals actually yeah. so if you've got a 96 percent reduction in that then that flows right throughout the ecosystem and so yeah we got to really seriously think about indigenous plants as being a an integral part of yeah. you know town planning if we want to have biodiversity survive alongside yeah. us yeah i think i think like you know not just councils but people that need to move away from you know your wildlife garden is like a bird attracting um you know honey station for birds mm. it's so complex it's it's really the insects that really need totally. preservation totally. you know what yep. type of grasses yeah do you have senecios you fire weeds and all that type mm. of thing yeah i don't think people look into that aspect of the microecology enough yeah which is the basis of everything yeah even yeah. like um you know uh, 
talking about things that are going away and lots of people will probably be happy with this but they shouldn't is um i rarely find a huntsman in houses anymore like yeah. i remember like when i was a kid it would be like there'd always be a huntsman in the house and dad would have to go and get it and i put yeah. it in the glass and take it out that rarely happens now no, you know yeah. like i never never have to take a huntsman out of the house anymore yeah it's true and that yeah. that's a, not a good sign is mm. it yeah yeah absolutely and i mean it's a uh, yeah, uh, that's that's an indicator, isn't it? That something's not right. But um, that that whole thing about um, uh, the obsession with nectar for bird gardening is yeah. something that um, would be really good to to fix because there's a lot of people out there who want to do good with their garden and want to provide habitat. But if you go into a nursery or if you look at a bird bird gardening book or something like that or, or advice on it, it's always about nectar. Yeah. And in fact, that's only servicing a really small fraction of, of the birds out there. Yeah. Most of them, even, even the honey eaters, rely on insects. Yeah. in large part um and so what you really got to be doing is gardening for insects first and foremost because in fact that overemphasis on nectar can have perverse outcomes anyway where you just end up attracting the most aggressive species which then push out everything else to an even greater extent anyway like if you go for a walk in um the Ripponlea estate mm-hmm. which is ironically it's a it's an estate that is 99% non-indigenous plants and there's a healthier small bushbird community in there than in almost any of the other parks that you'll right. go to in, in a Melbourne. Um, why, why do you think that is? Well, it's because a lot of these other parks have a combination of masses of nectar being produced by a range of eucalypts from all over Australia. Yeah. So there's always something flowering um, and a lack of structural refuge as well. So yeah. those two things together are just an open door for the most aggressive species because yeah. they can they can control a really reliable resource. Yeah. Uh, so noisy miners are the, the number one, uh, you know, culprit there um and in in rip and lee sure it's all exotic plants but there's not much nectar either um and there's that thick structure and then there's also a thick leaf litter layer from which emanates you know a fair bit of insect life too even if they're not on the plants so yeah you get flocks of you know 50 silver eyes in there and wow yeah insane. right through the through the cooler months uh eastern spinebills still breed in there yeah gray fantails still breed in there yeah when they're not breeding regularly in any of the other even the bushland reserves yeah um and uh brown thornbills uh in huge numbers they're the most common bird in there most surveys that i that's do that's really interesting isn't it yeah, yeah yeah but i mean if that was indigenous plants with the same structure it'd probably be even better they're, they're proper bush birds that you're talking about. Like, yeah. You know, really healthy. Yeah. You know, woodland somewhere would have those type of birds, wouldn't they? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. That, yep. That's really interesting. So you'd be thinking, like, you know, probably if you want to, you know, have the most biodiverse yard that's going to have the best impact on birds, you're really looking at the three layers, aren't you? You're looking at the canopy, the mm. mid. And the, and the ground, aren't you? You've got yeah. to have all those three elements to really get the best biodiversity, aren't you? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. And um, I reckon there's also a certain amount of thought that has to go into that dynamic of, um, you know, that nectar, the, the role that nectar plays. Yeah. Cause, well, people love birds, you know. Like people, yeah, yeah. you know, they get the magpie in the backyard and they'll, like, throw them little bits of meat yeah. and bread and all that. And, you know, people have that connection through birds, even mm. if they don't even you know they're not really interested in nature but if you can get people more interested in everything else Mm. there's going to be better isn't it 
We're just around the hour mark right now, and this is where the show would be usually finishing. So this is the extra half an hour we get in. Uh, we'll be back with Geo soon, but right now I'm going to play you some African funk. This is uh, the Funkies with Abraka. Hello, my name is Dave Graney. I am an underworld musician of many years standing. I'm here to ask you to tune into my fellow traveller, my comrade, Radio Caram. Hello and welcome back. The track you just heard then was the Tihara Afrobeat version of Gill's Revolution. And that comes off the Tihara Tropical Edits EP. And that was available on Wawa's 45s. I'm not exactly sure when that came out. I think it might have been a few years ago. Uh, before you that, you heard Tata Fatagwe and that comes from Vadu Game and before that you heard from the Funkies and the name of the track was Abraka and that comes off a best of album called The Funkies Dancing Time the best of East Nigeria's Afro Rock Exponents 1973 to 1977 and I must say the drums on that track are truly brilliant so we've got about another 15 minutes to go of the show. We're going to go back to speaking with Geo, and we'll be talking about some fantastic native trees. So, so yeah, I mean, two trees that I think can do, do a lot in a small space without attracting those really aggressive, you know, nectivorous birds, um, black wattle and drooping she-oak. My God, when I watch migratory bush birds moving through our area... yeah they hone in on those two trees like nothing else they're like a lifeline even if you go you know to to bushland um on the outskirts of the city those two trees still uh, are hives of activity for a lot of those birds that are declining fastest so um you know i've been to woodlands historic park in the autumn when there's heaps of golden whistlers moving through you basically get them in no other trees other than the black wattles at times yeah if you want to find a, a whistler just go and find a black wattle and there'll be one in there yeah you know? um and then you know parts of the foreshore that still have a lot of drooping she oak and not too much coast banks here that's where you'll get all the all the thornbills hanging on and yeah and other things passing through yeah so those two trees i reckon I mean, they would have been huge components of the landscape before, and having that um, that factor of not producing a lot of nectar, if any, in fact, um, but producing a lot of invertebrates, they're really good all-rounders for solving a lot of the problems that face, you know, small bush birds in urban areas. So, so what do you think it is about... Um drooping she oaks that are, are so appealing to it's interesting you know it, range. it took me a long time to sort of clue onto that because they don't look especially fertile do they no you know? no i mean yeah. they've got like you know they've got shiny trunks in a way almost mm. and they've basically got these um branchlets that are mm. like little long fingers i think mm. most people that have been to the coast will, will be familiar with them um very hangy long little branchlets Hmm. So yeah, well, I, I do see a lot of insect activity in drooping she oaks. If you look closely at the um, the little branchlets, you'll see oftentimes um, the nymphs of, of flat bugs. It'll look like a little teardrop shape, tiny little thing. Yeah. And they seem to be the basis of a lot of the activity on drooping she oaks. So then you get lacewing larvae and all these little predatory insects running around on the branches eating those. Yeah. Um, but then also like the some birds like yellow thornbills and brown thornbills will will pick those tiny little things off as well they'll feed right. on minuscule insects yeah um 
and um, and then with black waddles, I mean, they are an absolute powerhouse for invertebrate oh, life. Yeah. Like, I, I don't think there's Everything any other. Everything loves them, doesn't it? Yeah, totally. Yeah. More yeah, moths like and butterflies as well. Like, yeah, they're they're a shabby tree. Like they've got fifteen years, and yeah. you know, the, but they the give so much in, in that they, time. Yeah, they give so mm. much to so many, don't they? Yeah, um, I remember hearing. Um, uh, from uh, from George Paris, there was a, a study done he was talking to me about where um, people found 700 different uh, insect species on one single black wattle tree. They were wow. comparing a lot of the acacias and black yeah. wattle stood out as the absolute best there. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Now, in a you know a habitat gardening, I, I would definitely uh, suggest get them, especially if you mm. want something to... You know, to give you a lot of bang for your buck to go really fast and grow mm. fast, especially for screening. You know, it's just that, you know, when it gets a bit shabby, you might have mm. to do a bit of pruning. Yep, you know, you yep. can still keep most of the tree as well. I do know, don't know of a guy who coppices black wattle and he uses it for firewood. I don't know if that it's keeps it good. firewood. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even if you're doing that... Um, that's, that's not a bad idea. Yeah, and also it grows really fast too. So, you know, you can have a, a, a fully formed, you know, screen almost in, in a couple of years really with black wattle. Yeah. So that's the other, the flip side of it. But in general, the bipinnate wattles get eaten by a lot more things. You know, yeah. they're, they're f- full of life. The phyllode wattles, the ones with the broad, shiny, what look like leaves, they don't get eaten by quite as much. But out of those, blackwood is okay, you know has a fair bit of insect life on it yeah. and acacia pycnantha or golden wattle yeah. has probably the most of all the phyllodinous wattles from you know in my observation anyway so right. that's a really nice garden sized wattle as well yeah. you know for people doesn't live that long again where, where would that normally occur in its natural range um, gets into our area yeah. but um, in in our region it's more on exposed west facing slopes and stuff right so, Yarra Ranges type thing is yeah, it yeah. yeah it's in there um, it's mostly in drier habitat okay um, but um, in, in the sort of sandbelt region uh, one spot you can go and see it growing as a remnant is Jim Willis Reserve in Brighton okay. it's growing on the cliffs there actually yeah yeah um, and then there's a few isolated trees here and there but being short lived it needs you know that disturbance factor to keep um, keep regenerating and in a lot of the reserves that it doesn't have that so yeah mm. So we're still now we're still on the subject of like pesky birds and you know <laughs> trying to you know create a little bit of habitat for the struggling little critters. Um, you told me something I can't remember when you told it, it might have been um, a while back about um, noisy miners uh, uh, something that noisy miners do how they they create their own farm almost don't <laughs> they Yeah, they'll find a tree. And they harvest the the lerps or something. Mm. I was I was amazed by that. That's, yeah, uh, that's. But that makes sense to me. Could, yeah. could you just explain that? Yeah, a bit? absolutely. And that's the driving force behind their aggression. So, noisy miners' their entire life strategy <clears throat> revolves about around basically excluding competitors, because once they've done that, they've they can commandeer their main food resource, which is called the lerp you know and it's a little sugary and waxy cap made by an insect um called a psyllid and basically if you've ever seen a eucalypt leaf with little white spots all over it yeah they're lerps and they look like little shells don't they like little uh, scallop shells sometimes yeah yeah that's a genus of of psyllid called cardiaspina produces those what are called lace lerps and then there's 
oh sorry uh yeah cardiaspina yeah anyway and then there's a there's a really common one on a lot of you know you see it on red gums and yellow gums and stuff uh called glycaspis it's got like a it's actually really sweet if you try the lerp Uh, um but anyway if you peel away that little white cap there'll usually be a little nymph underneath there sucking on the sap yeah and a lot of birds like to eat that they like to eat both the lerp and the nymph yeah but noisy miners uh, and also bell miners often tend to peel away the lerp leaving the nymph there to to live another day and build another lerp basically so essentially they are farming them because they're also protecting them from all those predators things like pardalotes that just chomp on lerps all day long yeah um they're um they get pushed out by the noisy miners and and that's where it all stems from is that the noisy miners are trying to protect their livestock essentially yeah um but we've uh we've allowed them to do that on a grand scale where they never would have been doing it before and the effects on small birds i don't think has been fully realized i've i've done surveys looking at that question around melbourne and I feel like their effect on on bird communities is just astronomical. Um, like the initial, you know, declines that we might have seen in the Melbourne area, you know, with massive land clearing, the post ha- post war housing boom, and that sort of thing. That was a you know saw a wave of local extinctions and declines, and I I feel that the uh, success of noisy miners in the last 20 years is driving another wave of declines of pretty much anything smaller than them yeah uh you you go around most parks now um which most of them have noisy miners and you will struggle to see a single bird under 60 grams yeah um whereas when you go into almost any type of habitat could be grassland could be tall wet forest anything that doesn't have them it's dominated by those small birds and they're the most diverse group. So that's what it's supposed to be. Yeah. And yet it's the complete flip side of that. So, um, yeah, yeah, concerning. It's like if you, whenever you see, like if you actually do ever see like a kookaburra or or a currawong or something nice, it's <laughs> usually if you love, live in the suburbs, it's likely to be tailed by two or three <laughs> noisy yeah. miners. Yeah. And I've got to point out, they actually are native, but uh, yeah, it's just the, the situation of extinction and urbanisation is just—it's boosted their numbers so much. Um, what do you think we could do to sort of like get the balance right? Is it are we planting too many eucalyptus trees and not enough mid-story native trees? Do you think that could be something to do with it? That's certainly a part of it. And and for noisy miners, the the table is sort of set when you've got eucalypts over lawn. That seems to be um, their absolute, you know, favourite kind of situation. So I, I came to that realisation over time. A lot of people are very aware of that, of course. But um, white-plumed honey eaters used to be the most common bird in local parks down my way. That's insane. And now... They're only in the car parks because, of course, noisy miners are another eucalypt-dependent bird, but the car parks don't have the lawn element, so the noisy miners don't really live there yep. unless there's some lawn nearby. So, so yeah, eucalypts over lawn, that's um, that's something to avoid. Um, where, where you get other types of trees over lawn, you usually get a lot less uh, noisy miners. But like you say, yes, the, the missing understory is, um, is, a, is a huge factor too. Um, but there are, you know, combinations of different factors when you look at different reserves around Melbourne. Jawbone Reserve 
a lot of it is like you know 80 percent lawn and isolated trees but those trees are drooping she oaks yeah. rather than eucalypts and the most common birds in there are superb fairy wrens, yellow rump thornbills, all yeah. that sort of stuff that's dropped out. So it's not just a matter of structure or just a matter of plant composition. It's combinations of a few things. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mate, it's been so much fun talking. I love talking to you. It's so much fun. You've got so much knowledge in that head of yours. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on to Grassroots Hi-Fi. It's been an absolute blast and I'd love to talk to you again. Yeah, I'd love to, to uh, come in again. Huge yeah, pleasure. Thanks Huge a lot. And, uh, one, one, one more thing though. We were talking about music before. Um, it, is a, it is a show that I do like to play a bit of music as well. If you were to choose one track, what would it be? Ooh. Would it be Tism? Uh, <laughs> we were talking about that Yeah, before. I reckon we should put a Tism song on. What do you reckon? Um go an old classic Greg the Stop Sign Greg the Stop (laughs) Sign alright mate I'll chase that up for you (laughs) thank you so much mate when I hear that (laughs) (laughs) cheers mate Dave Crosby, Jim McGuinn, and it's very good to be on your show, man.